the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. When there's tension between individuals and the church, we understand the damage it does to our relationships and the fellowship within the body. Not only are those outside of the church unable to understand this, they don't even care to. Join us now for Grace to the Bay as we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through sound expository teaching by our teacher, Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio outreach of Grace Church of the Bay Area located in San Mateo. If you are blessed by Dr. Chen's message and are looking for a church home, you're invited to come worship with them. Now, here is Dr. Chen. You know, they say that variety is the spice of life. And I tend to agree. Uh, From different foods and flavors to landscapes that we can enjoy on vacation or in our travels to people. And what a wonderful, speaking of people, what a wonderful plethora the Lord has given the church in regards to personalities, desires, humor, and giftedness. Even the varying opinions that we all have challenge us. They grow us. They build us up. Is that not why we're here, why we're in small groups, why we're in men's and women's groups? Because something that we may be thinking, someone will bring something else up and we think, hey, that's pretty good. That'll help me in my spiritual growth. But with such variety when it comes to people and personalities, disagreements are inevitable. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing with other people. After all, God has gifted us all with brains and minds. We, he didn't put us here to be robots, all walking the same way and thinking the same way. It's good to disagree. Disagreements can further the cause of Christ and the building of the church when viewed and used properly. In other words, to hear people out, to communicate, not just to fight and get angry. But when used and viewed properly, disagreements are a good thing. But what happens when a disagreement turns into an argument? What happens when a disagreement, a difference of opinion, turns into a dispute? How do we handle that? Do we tell other believers? Is it gossip? Is it a prayer request? Do we forget just the lay people and go directly to the elders, to the pastor? Or do we forget the church entirely and just go to civil court, small claims court, a court of law? After all, the legal system in our country, much like in ancient Corinth, is very functional and extremely accessible. Well, when it comes to disputes that have risen to the degree or to that degree, Our passage this morning gives us direction as to how to handle them. This teaching comes out of the fact that there was such a dispute in the church of Corinth that Paul is writing to, and the matter had been taken by two individuals to a court of law. 
Let's see what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Would you turn there with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Even without unpacking this text, I think it's safe to assume that you all can already know how Paul feels about going to a court of law. But this morning, I want to give you five guiding principles regarding lawsuits. Five guiding principles regarding lawsuits. The first guiding principle when we're talking about lawsuits is the contemptible action. The contemptible action. Look again at verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his brother, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So Paul has heard of this lawsuit in which a believer in the Corinthian church has taken another believer to court. Now, there is a possibility that this was not unique in that church and that it was happening quite frequently. And as he explains that he knows about this, he uses terminology that tells us that he is absolutely shocked and horrified. The grammar here, specifically in the word dare, indicates that this is presently happening. The problem he has is in the fact that bringing someone to a court of law means that they are expecting help and judgment from someone who isn't a Christian. And that's what he says here. He makes a distinction between the unrighteous and the saints. In other words, someone who doesn't hold to the morality and the biblical standard by which Christians live and by which they should resolve their problems. And these Christians are going to someone like that. And even if they should come across a judge who is a Christian, just like in the American court system, they are bound by the law of the land and cannot rule based on the commands of Scripture. In the same vein, the Jews of the day would consider bringing a lawsuit before non-Jewish judges to be a blasphemy against the law of God. The Greeks, on the other hand, loved lawsuits not unlike modern Americans. The contrast that Paul brings to our attention is the unrighteous or the unbelievers versus the saints or believers. Ultimately, as we'll see throughout this passage, his point is that Christians should be able to settle their own disputes. The contrast between the unbeliever and the believer in this context can be further clarified with a rhetorical question. And it's this. 
if you cannot settle a dispute with all your spiritual gifts, with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God as your guide, how in the world can you expect a non-Christian to do it? Keep in mind, we are talking about a Christian taking another Christian to court. That is the only context and situation he's talking about here. Christian taking another Christian to court. I should also clarify, as our CHP officer looks at me inquisitively, that we're talking about a civil case and not a criminal case. In no way is Paul saying that crimes are to be dealt with in the church only and not to involve the police or the legal court system. We are not talking about criminal activity. But the general principle holds true. By virtue of who you are, brothers in Christ, you should be able to come to a resolution without involving a secular judge. And to make matters worse, if you go to court, then you are following the world's pattern of seeking selfish gain and demanding that you are right, even if it means defaming the other person's character. As long as I get my money, as long as he honors the contract, as long as I get my property back, I don't care how I smear, intentionally or inadvertently, this other Christian's reputation. That's what court is. And you can see the ramifications in the unity of the church. All of that goes against everything we are saved to be. To to take another Christian to court, Paul is saying, is absolutely contemptible. And this is what he's stressing. And to be clear, when he says, do you dare do this? He's not using the word dare in a positive way, as in, all right, guys, who has the courage to do this? He's using the word dare as in, how dare you? How dare you do this? The nerve, the gall, the shamelessness to take another family member to court. How dare you do this to the fellowship? How dare you do this to the church? How dare you do this to your testimony? How dare you do this to the reputation of God? How dare you? It's contemptible. And with this first question, Paul gives us our first guiding principle regarding lawsuits, which is they are utterly contemptible actions. Shameful. Embarrassing. Horrific. The second guiding principle is the corresponding ability. Because if we're not supposed to take him to court, then what do we do? Look at verses 2 and 3, the corresponding ability. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? So Paul now elaborates on what he introduced in verse 1, the ability of Christians to decide on such matters. He uses the common reasoning of greater to lesser. Like if you can do this big thing, surely you can do this little thing. 
right? If you can take that long test, surely you can do this little word problem. If you can, for a living, clean dozens of hotel rooms, surely you can tidy up your bedroom, okay? We do that all the time. Parents, you do this all the time. And the greater to lesser here is he says, if we will be judging the world and even angels, we can definitely judge these disputes, these little disputes uh, regarding the matters of this life. And as we follow these questions, there's a logical sequence that builds to his point. The first question is phrased in a way that expects a positive answer. That is an answer of yes. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Yes, even if they didn't actually know this, this is a true statement. To put it another way, more common to our modern vernacular, he's basically saying, guys, you know that we're going to judge the world, right? Don't you? This is not a contradiction of what we looked at last week in that judging the world is outside of our jurisdiction or concern. This is eschatological. That's just a fancy word for talking about things that are future. Not as in tomorrow, but as in future, as in the book of Revelation, the end times. This is talking about the judgment that we will have or we will execute with Christ during the millennium, during the millennial reign. We will all be involved in some way. Now, we aren't given details of how this plays out or what it looks like, but we are given some information in Scripture that connects us with that time of reign and judgment from God. In fact, I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and verses 26 and 27. If you're not familiar, just turn all the way to the end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. Wait, isn't this time about Jesus? Go on. As I also have received authority from my Father. That is Jesus speaking to us. Look at chapter 3 and verse 21 in Revelation. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, this is Jesus speaking to us. Jump back to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. Here, John further describes what he sees in this vision, this revelation. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. Then I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. It's time out the tribulation, of course. And they came to life and reigned with Christ, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's a reigning there. There's a judgment there. Don't turn there, but 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, we will, he will also deny us. Now we know, as Jesus promised his 12 disciples, that they will reign in a special way. There will be special thrones for them over the 12 tribes of Israel. But here we have clearly seen that we are all involved as well. How that plays out, we don't know. But we know it will play out. 
But back to Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 6. He's basically saying, if all of this is going to happen, that we will judge the world someday, then it begs the question, which is Paul's second question. Don't you think that you're competent to make up the equivalent of a civil or small claims court if you're going to judge the world? In verse 3, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul doubles down. He asks again grammatically in a way that expects the answer yes. Don't you know that we will judge angels? We have even less details about our role in this. We're not even told in Scripture what angels we will judge, all angels or fallen angels. Uh, I would tend to think the latter since good angels have no sin to be judged, but we don't know. Perhaps we will be involved in the judgment of angels that is mentioned in 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6. Regardless, that's beside the point here, which is that if we are going to judge angels tomorrow, then surely we can settle disputes among Christians today. These disputes he refers to as matters of this life. Again, these are not crimes. They are issues of daily living and life on earth. Food, clothing, money, property rights. Uh, Things you would sue over, such as a breach of contract, stolen items, property lines, uh, being sold a car by another Christian in the church that turns out to be a lemon. How do you handle that? Do we get my money back? Can you pay for the repairs? Those are types of things, again, that we would go to civil court for, that we would go to small claims court for, that if it's brother, brother, sister, brother, brother, sister, we should be able to handle that on our own. Matters of this life. And if the two in disagreement can't figure it out, then they should turn to others in the church for help. And so the second principle regarding lawsuits is our ability to adjudicate. We can do it. Not because we in and of ourselves are so smart, but because we have the word of God. And because we are pursuing the principles of selflessness. Not being greedy. Not loving money. Preferring others. And you're saying, wait a minute, (laughs) I just read the passage. He's not saying just give in and give to the other person. He will in verse 7. And that'll be next week. But it's not wrong to say, hey, listen, I need this money back. We're not just saying just to to let go and, and to be the loser, but those principles need to come into play. And so we need to remember that going to law is contemptible but we have the ability. We are competent. The third point, the third guiding principle regarding lawsuits, we find in verse 4, and that is the contradictory appointment. The contradictory appointment. And he goes back to the unbelievers. He says, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? And see, you see, the underlying principle here is that Church or Christianity is not just one part of our job. We have the Christianity, which is one slice of the pie, and then we have our occupation, which is one slice of the pie. We have our family, which are one another slice, and you understand what I'm saying. No, Christianity, our faith in God is the whole pie, and everything else that the Lord puts in your life, from jobs to kids to education to whatever, is all to to be lived out in faithfulness to Christ. And so what he's saying here is just because it's a lawsuit, just because it's money, just because it's property that has nothing to do with the church per se, 
doesn't mean you can compartmentalize your life and say this is this slice and this belongs in a court of law, not in the church. And he makes a great picture here. See, when we have the secular law courts handle our disputes, we as members of the body of Christ are allowing those who have no standing whatsoever in the body of Christ to have jurisdiction over our lives. And that shouldn't be the case. At least some part of our lives. They say, well, it's just a small thing. It's, 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 it's just this little contract. I can go to court. It's not a big deal. I'm not really giving a, a secular judge great jurisdiction over my whole life. But it's a part of your life that's important enough for you to go to court. So it's clearly significant for you. It's not just that Paul is saying that they aren't part of the church by describing them as no account or no standing in the church. He's not just saying, why would you, have, why would you go to a secular court of law and have people over you that are not in the church? No, no, no. He's using a word that means to consider as nothing, to despise, to reject with contempt. This is not just judges in particular. Right? This isn't just this context. We, we know this is the reality of how the Bible describes all unbelievers who have rejected God. And by the way, speaking of biblical descriptions of non-Christians, let's take a few more and attach this to the reality of what you are doing when you take a matter like this to a court of law and having this person adjudicate a part of your life. God calls them lawless The Bible calls them darkened, blind, without excuse, evil, unwise. We've talked about this throughout 1 Corinthians. They don't have the wisdom of God. So why would you willingly put them over your dispute and then submit to their decision? They have rejected our values and they have adopted completely different standards. Now in all of this, I want to make a very important side note. It's a side note that we've brought up in the last almost four years. This is very important. And perhaps for Christians even more so the previous eight years. Paul is not attacking any government official or the judge's legal standing within the government. Nor is he giving allowance for rebellion or lawlessness or even disrespect toward judges or any government authority. In fact, he is quite clear in Romans 13 that we are to submit to their authority and to show them respect, regardless of if they follow your party lines. But what we're talking about here is not an obligatory need to submit, again, as you would if you committed a crime. Because these are issues or disputes that should be solved, if not by the disputing Christians themselves, then by the church. In other words, if we're talking about a legal, uh, in a legal way, these are cases that we willingly bring before a judge. You see, no crime has been committed. You were just sold a lemon, and so a cop's not going to come to your door and drag you to court over that unless the other brother initiated that, you see. And here are the Corinthians willingly running to secular judges in matters that they need not have authority over. 
we are in essence appointing them over our situation despite them having a completely different mindset, a completely different morality, and a completely different God. This appointment contradicts our very being and beliefs. It's a contradictory appointment. Who we should be appointing, not in an official sense, are other believers within the church. And this leads us to our fourth guiding principle regarding lawsuits, the clear answer. The clear answer. Look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? So Paul started by expressing his shock and disappointment about about these lawsuits in verse 1. He further emphasizes this with the phrase, to your shame. He's saying that what they should, what they have done, they should be embarrassed for. And they're still doing it. They're running, they're running to the courts of law. They are not exhibiting love, they're not exhibiting Christian character. It's embarrassing, he says. This is, this is your shame, this is shameful. And the reality, he goes on to say, is that there are people in the church that can decide on these matters. Any believer, any believer, who is walking with the Lord and seeks counsel from God's Word and the Holy Spirit has the tools necessary to settle a disagreement between two believers more competently than the most highly esteemed, trained, and experienced unbelieving judge when it comes to these matters. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. For the next part in this series, join us next week at this same time. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You are invited to join them for worship services in San Mateo, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit gracebayarea.org for service times, directions, live streamed services, listen to archived sermons, or to make a tax-deductible donation to help keep Grace to the Bay on the air so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Again, that's gracebayarea.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.